Hello again. Hello. Yep. How are you? Yeah. Uh, yeah, we were actually talking about uh, about uh, any any potential doppelgangers you might have. Uh, Henry finds that you look like Noam Chomsky. I said you look like Lula da Silva. I prefer Lula da Silva. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so let's jump right back into the, the conversation. Now we're yeah. going to talk a little bit about some other Latin American countries you we, all, we had a long conversation with Cuba. Let, now let's start with um, with Venezuela. So obviously Venezuela, things haven't been going very well in uh, recent times. Ever since pretty much uh, Hugo Chavez died in 2014, it's been going downhill. Uh, we have hyperinflation. Uh, Maduro has been taking an increasingly uh, authoritarian stance, seemingly. So a little bit to explain a little bit how the Venezuelan political system works and uh, why people are upset at at, uh, at what Maduro did with the constituent the constituent assembly and uh like Juan Guaido is the leader of the of the actual assembly it's kind of a mess so explain a little bit how the political system in Venezuela works well firstly i think um the political system in Venezuela is of course different than in Cuba it has its mm-hmm. own history it came as a, a result of the uh, electoral election uh, victory by Hugo Chavez uh in uh, 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 at the beginning at uh, the end of the uh, 20, 21st century, end, end of the 20th century, and he won the election, became president. And since that time, he's been developing his pro- program <coughs> of 21st century socialism to try to use the natural resources of Venezuela for the well-being of the uh, Venezuelan people. Also, right from the beginning, Chavez said he believes not only in uh, participatory democracy, but also in uh, um, protagonistic democracy, that is to instill in the minds of the people and the actions of the people at the, at the lowest level, at the grassroots, that this revolution is their revolution and from the communes and the base, it is up to them to build it from the bottom up. Now, when, when Chavez passed away, sure, that was a great loss, but No one can replace a leader such as him as far as his being charismatic, his knowledge, his ideology. But uh, when Maduro won the elections after Chavez uh, passed away, uh, a new wave uh, 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 of disinformation was unfurled against Nicolas Maduro, saying that the elections were fraudulent and questionable and all that, even from so-called some of the people on the left, they jumped on that as well, especially in Canada. But, you know, there are Canadian observers who took part in these elections who observed it. The elections were not fraudulent. Even Jimmy Carter, I don't think we can say Jimmy Carter is a Marxist. He said the best electoral system in the world is Venezuela, you know. And so they won the elections. And since that time, uh, the uh, what happened since uh, 2000? Soon as Trump came to power, you have actually it started with Obama. Let us be frank. Obama once right during the the time when he was so opening up with Cuba in 2016, right in, uh, in 2014. In December 2014, he made a statement: "We are opening up." Uh, relationship with Cuba, very nice. But one day later, on December 18th, 2016, Obama signed the first executive order in order to impose sanctions against Venezuela. And in March 2000, 
15th, three months later, he declared that Venezuela is a threat, can you believe it, a threat to the national security of Venezuela, thus more sanctions. And this has been going on for a long time. Now, these sanctions have been devastating to the uh, Venezuelan economy. Even uh, established economists uh, said recently that in a two-year period recently, the lives of already 40,000 Venezuelans were lost as a result of these sanctions. And those who you know uh, support sanctions, you know, they, they are very cynical, bro. They say, we want to we impose sanctions in order to make the economy scream so the people will revolt. The same method they use after Allende. Allende was uh, elected to power in 1973. So it's a basic playbook by the United States to impose sanctions, uh, difficulties to, to try to push the people into revolt. Now, you mentioned... The, the issue of Guaido and the the the, the um, Venezuelan revolution, they only lost really one election. It was to that national assembly where the opposition became uh, the, the main force in the national assembly and they elected uh, Juan Guaido as a speaker of the national assembly. Okay, they had that. At the same time, there was a lot of irregularities in how the opposition uh, installed their own deputies. But to make a long story short, Juan Guaido, with the help of the United States and Trudeau in Canada and others, declared, I am the president of Venezuela, the you know interim president of Venezuela. There's nothing in the Cuban Constitution, in the Venezuelan Constitution, that says that someone was the president of a national assembly could just automatically declare that the real president is no longer there. I am the real president. So since that time, the United States and Canada has been playing a very important role with the Lima Group, which is established of countries uh, such as Colombia. Chile, Brazil, and other big stalwarts of democracy and human rights aligned with Trudeau to try to interfere in the internal affairs of Venezuela and try to impose Guaido as the real president of Venezuela. Now, a new elections took place to the National Assembly several months ago. Of course, he was not elected. So the only, you know, small technical issue of validity he is no longer in the National Assembly. So protagonistic democracy where the, the people defend their own revolution. And therefore, that is why Maduro is still in power. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I think I'd have, I, I would be admiss to not uh, call out Justin Trudeau. Because Justin Trudeau helped to form the Lima Group with Colombia, Brazil, and others in order to carry out Trump's dirty work in Venezuela. I say that if it was not for Trudeau, the Lima group would never have existed. They needed this poster boy image to uh, hide the fact that it is Trump that is pushing the Lima group to organize a coup d'etat against President Maduro. And now it's just Trudeau's just about uh, very isolated. The only countries that still support Guaido or, for example, uh, UK and Colombia, Brazil, etc. 
Even the European Union no longer support Guaido. It's, it's not working. But Trudeau is sticking to Guaido. So I think this is an important point for Canadians to take into mind. The dirty role that Justin Trudeau played and is still playing uh, uh, on, uh, uh, against the uh, Venezuelan government. And of course, this is part his way in an indirect hypocritical manner of trying to subvert the Cuban revolution because he knows very well the closest ally of Cuba in the region is Venezuela. Mm. Actually, I was I want to ask you why do you think um, as a follow up to, to what your answer here why do you think Trudeau is is doing this because I remember when uh, Fidel Castro passed away uh, Justin Trudeau made a public display and and he was very fond of of Castro himself he said he met him when he was younger and his father uh, was friends with Castro and, and all that so. I, I'm not. I'm not going to go as far as say that Trudeau is a is a communist or a sympathizer or, or anything. But he himself was fond of, uh, of of Castro and was upset when he when he died. So why do you think he would go this far to support uh, someone like like Juan Guaido, who is fundamentally opposed to uh, Venezuelan or Bolivarian socialism? Now he made this positive statement with the passing of Fidel, I saw it. Now, two, three days, of course, this created a backlash in the American and the Canadian media. Now, in a press conference, someone, I think, from the CBC asked him, Trudeau, is Fidel Castro a dictator or not? He said, yes, he's a dictator. So that undid his very positive statement with regard to passing of Fidel. In the uh, um, Canadian government, now this has come out recently, there is a very important lobby, pro-Israel lobby, in the Canadian government. The person who's heading that, Kotler, he is the most important uh, um, uh, pro-Israel lobbyist in the Canadian government. Now, why, why I'm saying this is important? Because Venezuela, Chavez before, and Maduro now, are known to be the country that is most in support of Palestine against the Israeli apartheid treaty. They're known for it, you know. And Canada does not want to have that country over there. So I think these are the three main reasons for which um, uh, Justin Trudeau has been really involved in, in the issue of, uh, of, of Venezuela. You mentioned uh, Chavez nationalizing uh, industries in Venezuela. I think the largest, um, obviously, there's oil. Venezuela is the largest oil reserve in the in the world, and yeah. um, Chavez nationalized all, all that in um, what we call PDVSA or Petróleos de Venezuela, right? And yeah. um, however, despite all that, in recent years, its economy has pretty much you know collapsed. The country suffers from hyperinflation after uh, extensive quantitative easing. Um, to maintain very, very um, extensive social programs. So how much do you think that Chavez and his successor Maduro are to blame for the current situation in Venezuela? Well, I, I think uh, that's a, a difficult question to answer. One has to take into account the sanctions that have been taking place against the uh, Venezuelan government since the time of Obama, from 14 to 2015, and increased manyfold. With Trump, you know, if Venezuelan people were left alone without sanctions, they could work out their own problems. They could improve their own political and social structure. 
but they, they, they are sort of in a bind because they are continuously fighting this onslaught by the United States and its allies. All right. Uh, I mean, that pretty much sums up, I guess, all your uh, everything that all the research you did over the past few years about, about Venezuela. So, uh, I guess as a last um, for the last topic, I guess I'm going to talk a little bit about Bolivia as well because over the last, I guess, two years, there's been so much movement and political uh, turmoil in, in Bolivia. Uh, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, actually, um, I I heard about Bolivia in the beginning from uh, my my political mentor who actually met uh, Carlos Mesa. A long time ago, I think you know who Carlos Mesa is—the main opposition in uh, yeah. in, uh, in Bolivia. Um, but I wanted to ask uh, mainly about what has happened uh, since what you call the, the coup in, in Bolivia. So Evo Morales was, you would say, deposed uh, after election watchdogs uh, called the election that happened uh, in uh, 2019. I think uh, it, they called it. They called it fraudulent and uh, they, call, they found irregularities and more or less obviously you know, seeked asylum in Mexico uh, since then. So now you have uh, Luis Arce, I think, who's, the, who's back in power. But in between then, when Morales was deposed, uh, Johnny Añez became the, the, the president. And uh, I remember seeing this very uh, iconic video when she was walking into the, the, the house uh, where I mean the president is supposed to stay, in, and she said the Bible returns. She was saying in Spanish, the Bible returns to the house or whatever, to the presidency, something to that effect. And what, um, a, what a what a great example of Eurocentrism, right? U.S. centrism. <laughs> <laughs> right, and yeah, actually, yeah, and and actually, I want, I want to ask you specifically, so you know, it doesn't become a a ten hour conversation about the dynamics because because Morales is, uh, I think, the first native. Bolivian president, yes. uh, indigenous indigenous Bolivian in a in Venezuela. Uh, sorry, uh, Bolivia is the only majority indigenous country where the majority of the population is indigenous versus descendants from Europeans. So explain the dynamic of of that uh, election and and why uh, you think he was deposed in the way he was deposed. Well, actually, what he was he wasn't deposed. I think the correct term was a coup d'état. Uh, against Morales, you know, let's call a spade a spade. It was a coup, coup d'état. Uh, they simply, he, even though he was, you know, winning the elections, uh, the OAS came in with a uh, fraudulent uh, set of statistics saying that there was a the elections were rigged and all that. And then the some of the army turned against Evo Morales. They surrounded him, and they literally uh, he had to seek asylum. And it was a coup d'état. I don't think we could use any of it was a coup d'état against an elected president. And of course, uh, those people took power again. You mentioned the Anyanis and all that. Basically, you know, racist, white supremacist against the majority uh, uh, indigenous people in Bolivia. And since that time, well, I've been following carefully. And I think the, by the time Morales was, uh, overthrown forcefully and sent by plane for his own uh, well-being. Since that time, people, at the, we've been speaking the last hour or so about participatory democracy, the role of the people in history. This is yet another example how in this case, and this is historically uh, very justified, the most uh, impoverished, discriminated against section 
of Bolivian society as part of Latin America, the uh, indigenous people, they fought like for over a year with their bare hands in order to eventually win the election, despite massacres, three massacres actually took place. They actually won with their bare hands the elections and the new mass representatives were elected president and vice president in Bolivia. I would say that episode in Bolivian history is crucial not only for Bolivia, but for all of Latin America. So despite all the attempts by the United States, that left-wing movement in Latin America is carrying on its building. And who knows, you mentioned Brazil. You perhaps know more about Brazil than I do, but the chances of Lula actually winning the election are very good. You know, and so there, you know, and Brazil is not a minor player, as you know, it's a major uh, country in that area, and the chances of Lula winning is very good. And so whether it's Lula or the new president of um, Peru now, Bolivia, of course, I think that it's us in Canada, we have to support that. But I think we also have to call out the Trudeau government because he supported the coup against uh, Evo Morales. He didn't have anything to say against the brutality and repression in, in Chile with regards to Colombia, also nothing as well, just against Venezuela and against Colombia and against uh, Cuba. Is that you know a coincidence? I don't think so. Mm, you mentioned um, the actually uh, <laughs> but you mentioned Peru um, and that actually reminded me I, I saw the the news about the Peruvian election it was a very very close election in the end and uh, it was between the um, obviously there was a the the, the conservative candidate was Keiko Fujimori who was the daughter of Alberto Fujimori who was the um, the dictator in in Peru for many years um, and uh, her opponent was. Pedro Castillo, but I remember reading on um, uh, in the news on Twitter that he's actually a very interesting heterodox figure because he says that he's a a Marxist, has you know con- you know association with many trade unions and so on, but he has many positions, especially on social issues that people in the in North America here in Canada in the U.S. If if anyone is a is a leftist would consider unacceptable. For example, he said he's against gay marriage. Um, he's against legalizing marijuana. A lot of these positions that that um, the left like would support wholeheartedly in North America, he says that he's completely opposed to that, and I find that very interesting. No, I see what you're saying. Um, uh, yeah, this is the case, but we have to give him a chance. Will he change his mind on that? And even if these are his positions, which we you know, Canadian, Canadian, American, progressive. You know, we cannot support it. But at the same time, despite that, he he is the person to support in Peru. And then I guess it'll be up to the Peruvian people in the coming months and years to try to uh, move him away from these very conservative positions. This is up to the Peruvian people. But I think if any uh, American or Canadian leftist will be critical of him. Because of this, and in, and 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 in in an indirect manner, support any destabilization efforts against the uh, new uh, president of Peru. I think that this is not very much acceptable. Yeah, I think I think that that's generally a 
a position of some portion of the of the left, I guess. But I can't say that I haven't seen people on on Twitter, especially you know leftists, say that uh, they are they they don't they they find that people who support Castillo are are horrible because he has all these like terrible positions, and it's kind of it's it always happens. I don't know, like especially when I see fight in, within the left on Twitter or even in the in the media, it's always very over stuff like this. But um, that's neither here nor there. I let Henry. Take it away. It's his show, but he hasn't said anything or much. Henry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, <laughs> yeah so, uh, sorry for speaking so little today. My Wi-Fi is uh, just killing me right now. Uh, right now, it's okay. uh, going well, so I asked my question. So, uh, so, so, um, so, so John Bolton uh, and other American foreign policy thinkers have called um, uh, the, the, their, uh, our hemisphere, right? The idea is our hemisphere. Yeah, and, um, um, yeah. So, so in Bolivia, we see this uh, nationalization process uh, in agriculture and in infrastructure, yeah. uh, and so, so you talk about this as being like a, a national security threat to the U.S. almost as an, an ideological yeah. threat. So, can you explain how that ties in with the uh, the, the coup against Morales and uh, against other movements in South America as well? <laughs> well, the coup against Morales, unfortunately, it was very blatant. You know, when it took place, you have the uh, president of, of Tesla. What, what's his name? I forgot his name. Uh, the president of Tesla who has all Elon that. Musk? Elon Musk? Uh, yeah, Elon, Elon Musk. Musk. Go ahead. He, he was very airy. You know, he said, we will coup who we, will, who we want to coup. You know, but they openly say, we organize this coup in Bolivia because we want their natural resource there. Okay? So that is what happens there. And, of course, since... That he has never apologized and all that. And the, the media just presented him as this cool guy, you know, going off to space and all that. So that's what we're up against in the Western countries and, and Canada with regards to the, these movements. They have the, you know, these individuals saying whatever they want with no uh, comeback, no pushback from, from the media. Is, did, did I uh, answer your question? Or I think I might have missed the point. Henry? Yeah, well, I, I was more thinking of like... um. Uh, like how how does this like, sort of nation, national security threat to the U.S. because the another economic model is working? How does that like sort sort of drive their 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 coup or their their uh, supported uh, boycott of other elections? Well, well, the the um, uh, the, the United States, uh, of course, is are is interested in those very resources that countries such Bolivia and countries uh, Chile. Uh, and Venezuela have. And so United States defines a threat to their national security as coming from any movement anywhere in the world, which restricts their access to these parts of the world. Uh, you know, the United States still, still follows the Monroe Doctrine with regards to Latin America. Monroe Doctrine means that only we, the United States, we have the right to control that hemisphere. I think this is what Henry was getting at. We have the right to control that hemisphere, and we have every right, being in North America, to stop other countries, such as China, Europe, Iran, etc., from establishing relationships with uh, Latin, Latin America. Now, you know, that's not just Trump who resurrect, resurrected uh, the um, that that Monroe Doctrine, because Obama, not using the same words, when he established diplomatic relations with Cuba, reestablished diplomatic relations with Cuba in December 2014, he said something similar to that. He said that the, our policy failed 
And as a result, we do not have as much influence as we want in Latin America. So Obama, in a cool sort of way, you know, the cool guy, also has it ingrained in his thinking that the United States has, is beholden to have control over Latin America, whereas, uh, uh, whereas, uh, Trump does it in a more blatant way. We should not, I think we're touching on something that, you know, could dealt with another area, another time is that the whole issue, what has come about as an important issue since the pandemic and now is the rise of China. That is really important. You know, China has, has arisen. I don't know what you think. China has arisen, uh, as, as a country that is able to deal with uh, their own COVID situation and has provided tremendous help to other countries, such as Venezuela, etc., other countries in Latin America. And more and more people are looking to try, like, you know, Canada, China actually lifted uh, the all almost all of its people out of poverty at this present time. And it's an amazing accomplishment. And so China is also a threat to uh United States, especially when China is is making inroads in a positive way by helping uh, uh countries uh in Latin America such as uh, uh such as Venezuela and Iran is also very much helping Venezuela and Cuba. So I think what we are uh, is coming out of this, out of this pandemic, a positive thing. Is this push what, what, what I would call the push for a multipolar world consisting of Venezuela, you know, Venezuela, uh, Cuba, China, Vietnam, et cetera, Russia as well against the hegemony of the United States. And my view is this is very good. Any country that opposes the hegemony of the United States, irrespective of their politics, for example, whether it's China or Iran, or, or whatever. This, I think we have to support that push against the domination or the, the attempt, the attempt by the United States to completely dominate the world. Yeah, uh, I think uh, we'll, we'll, we'll close it off with that. But uh, even though I have some other questions, but we, we would have to let you go and for mm-hmm. And just, just before we do, do so, um, yeah, like Bruno asked uh, last time with our interview with, uh, Socialist Action, what's on your bookshelf in, uh, at your back? We see uh, a lot of, uh, uh, you, uh, well, people get my la- latest two books, uh, just by a king in a Google, uh, Arnold August Fernwood, F-E-R-N-W-O-O-D, Arnold August Fernwood. My two books will come out and there are 20% discount. And the, the code for the 20% discount is Cuba 20, Cuba 20, and you get your 20% discount. For those people living in the United States, I don't know if you have any, American listeners, it's the same thing, 20% discount. Just type in the name of my book and the, the, uh, code is August 20. Hmm. Since you're an author, actually, I like asking authors, uh, who are their inspirations? Since you read books yourself, you're probably inspired by other, other authors. So who, who would you recommend the audience that, you know, you have to, like, must read? Must read? I, must I read, yes. As, as far as current writers from the United States, I'm, I'm very much a fan of Michael Parenti. I don't know if you're familiar with him. And yet, I know, I know Parenti. Uh, he's done a lot of lectures in universities. I, I watched some of his videos. Uh, I read Black Shirts and Reds. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I, I, I think he's an important reference. And in, in this debate that is taking place now 
especially in the United States with regards to Noam Chomsky, people present him as the real alternative, alternative to the media, Michael Michael Parenti. Uh, and there, you know, a lot of other books, uh, but, you know, in, in terms of my life, if you want to know part of my life, what, what, uh, pushed me, what, uh, attracted me right from the beginning when I was a student in 1960 was a work by Franz Fanon, the, the wretched mm, of the, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, mm. the wretched of the, that, 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 uh, a major impact for me. I read that in one day, and my life has never been the same oh okay. since then. So there are other examples such that, you know, over the period of time, books that have really uh, made an impact on me. And I also have to say from, from the classics, you know, uh, Marx, the, the com- if one reads The Communist Manufacturer of, of Marx now, you may have a better understanding of what is happening in the world today. But, you know, mm-hmm. there are many books, but I think it, it's important that people read and reflect uh, upon uh, upon everything. 